I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. In some ways, uh, last few weeks, we've been having a prolonged Good Friday service, really, and the passages have been uh, very, uh, very weighty, very heavy, um, and this Sunday's not going to be any, <laughs> any different, but there was always, there's always so much joy and strength to draw out of these passages, even in the midst of looking at uh, Christ's crucifixion and his betrayal, uh, the heart of the gospel is right there. And so uh, we are going to uh, look at John chapter 19, and we will consider specifically this morning the crucifixion of our Lord. And so I would ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask for God's blessing. Our Father, this morning, this Lord's Day that you have given to us has been a great blessing and a source of strength and encouragement already. You've enabled us to gather together for prayer in the morning. You've enabled us to study biblical ethics and what that means for our lives to be conformed to your image in the Sunday school class. You've provided for us the hearing of the reading of your word. You've called us to worship through it. You've called us to sing praises to you through it, and we have done so with instrument and, most importantly, corporately with our voices together, singing praise unto you and encouraging one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And we thank you, Father, for that. We know, Lord, that we are coming now before your word once again. And the passage that you have provided providentially for us to look at this morning is a passage that speaks to the brutality of the cross that reveals to us the depth of your love for us in that your only begotten Son would come into the world and take on flesh and be obedient to the will of God and the Father that he might give his life as a ransom, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, this will be difficult for us to hear, no doubt, and to reflect on and, and to think about. But help us not lose sight of the fact that you have done this for us. You have sent your Son for us because of your great love for the world. And how thankful we are that we can gather now to read and to look at your word and remember how much you love us. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word now to the ears of your saints, that we might give our attention to it fully. May your spirit bless us and equip us and strengthen us, for it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So when we finished in John chapter 19 uh, last week, we kind of didn't really take a look too much at verse uh, 14, which I think is important for us to understand the, in the context of the crucifixion. 
And John said in chapter 19, verse 14, that Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, and he says it was on the day of preparation of the Passover. The day of preparation with the Jewish culture simply meant Friday, because Friday was known as the day of preparation as they prepared for the Sabbath day, which was to come. And the Sabbath of the Passover, the one that followed the Passover, was a, um, that whole week was considered a holy week. That whole week was considered uh, a way to prepare and to make, to make themselves ready, not just for the Passover, but for the week of the Passover that was to come. And so by saying that this day that Jesus was delivered over to be crucified was a day of preparation, he includes, of the Passover, John is simply saying that this particular Friday, this special Friday, this, well, he doesn't call it, but we call it this good Friday, is the one preceding the Passover festival ahead. Not, not just the Passover specifically, because as we have already looked at, Jesus and his disciples had already celebrated the specific Passover meal the Thursday night prior, because Jews recognized their days from sundown to sundown, and so Jesus and his disciples celebrated the evening prior, Thursday evening, they had their Passover proper meal. And so the week ahead is the Passover festival meal. And this is still Passover day then, the Friday that Jesus will be crucified. And John also told us in those verses of chapter 19 that it was about the sixth hour. Now, John could be using Roman calculation of time which is different than the Jews, and that it begins with midnight to, to midnight. So that would make it about 6 a.m. in the morning on Friday. We can't be precise on these times, right? They didn't carry watches in their pockets. They didn't carry sundials with them wherever they went. So they are just, uh, like John says, it was about, right? It was about this time. So there's some estimation in here, and so people debate and talk about how to reconcile these with the other times in the other Gospels. Uh, but what we do and can know is that if he was crucified around 9 a.m., as Mark says in his Gospel, then this had to probably be sometime before 8.30 a.m. And so by these references, here's the point. John is making the point that God was working. Kevin, I just really appreciated your call to worship because this is exactly what we're looking at. That God was working toward this redemptive moment from eternity past. Christ had this moment in his sight when he came into the world, when he was even at the right hand of God the Father in glory from all eternity. He had this moment in his sights. And that's because Christ came, this is so important, not ultimately 
for moral guidance, though Jesus does give us moral guidance, Christ did not come into the world ultimately to just leave us a good example to follow. If Jesus came and simply lived his life to give us a good moral example to follow into the glories of heaven, we would all be damned to hell. Because we could not follow his example. And praise the Lord, he's ordained even Gary's message from the Sunday school hour is perfectly in line with this. God has called us to follow him, and we are to strive to follow him, but at the end of the day, Christ had to come for something far more significant than leaving us a good moral example. That's how the world, less and less, I might add, looks at Jesus. They see Jesus as one who lived a good life, and they say, Jesus came into the world, and he died on the cross, and if you follow Jesus, and you try your best, and you wear your, which is probably, this marks my age, that old, what would Jesus do bracelet, okay? I don't even think those are around anymore. But if you wear your bracelet and you do what Jesus does and you try your hardest, then Jesus came to help you to get into heaven. That's the gospel, if the world believes it at all, is the gospel of the world. Do your best. But Jesus came to do one thing in particular, and that was to die in our place so that God's judgment might pass over us. This time was not a mistake or coincidence. It was not as an afterthought on the part of God. This was not God thinking, well, I guess this is as good of a time as any. No, Christ, the beloved Son of God, was sent into the world to be crucified specifically on the day of preparation of the Passover, on Passover day. And John has been showing us this throughout his gospel, that God's sovereign plan was being fulfilled through the obedience of the Messiah, the Son of God, in every aspect. And that's why John even refers to Jesus, John the Baptist, remember in chapter 1, when John the Baptist is testifying to Jesus, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is who we have been looking to. And so what I thought would be helpful for us to do as we go through this crucifixion account is to look at how the crucifixion of our Lord is the fulfillment of the Passover. And then secondly, to almost build off of our call to worship, to see how It is not only the fulfillment of the Passover, but what John records for us in these verses is actually the fulfillment of the types and the shadows and specific prophecies of the Old Testament. All of God's word from beginning to end 
focuses and finds its fulfillment in our Savior. And so let us read from John chapter 19, and we will pick up in verse 16 and read through verse 24. Let us hear the word of the Lord again, beloved. Chapter 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Amen. It is the concluding reading of God's word. So what is Passover in the Old Testament? Let's just review that. I know most of you probably know that. But Passover was the annual feast of the Jews that commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt. And so God instituted in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, this Passover feast. The last of the ten plagues that God sent upon Egypt was the death of their firstborn children among the Egyptians. And the angel of the Lord came, and he killed every firstborn child in Egypt. And he did this in order to protect Israel. To protect Israel, God made an ordinance, and everyone in Israel was to kill an unblemished lamb and spread the blood over the doorframe of their houses. And so that night, they were to roast the lamb and eat it with their, it says, with their traveling clothes on. They were to take their sandals and their belt and their staff, and they were to be ready to leave Egypt in haste. 
And when the angel of the Lord came and he saw the blood on the doorpost, the doorframe of their home, he would pass over those homes and spare their firstborn children. And then God says later in Exodus 12 that he instituted the feast of unleavened bread that's connected to the Passover. And God told the Israelites, take and bake bread with no leaven for a week as a reminder of what God did for them. The significance of bread without leaven was a reminder that God whisked them away so quickly from destruction that they didn't have time to wait for the leaven to rise. Why the death of a lamb and its blood as a sign for Israel? Didn't God know which house was an Israelite house and which was an Egyptian house? Well, the, the way to understand this is to ask the question, okay, it's not just to tell, for God to be able to tell, oh, this must be an Israelite house, it's got blood. You have to ask the question as well, why did the Egyptians die? They died as a punishment for their sin against God and Israel. This is what Exodus is about. They died as a punishment for their sin against God. And God was judging Egypt. And the death of the lamb and the blood over the doorpost implied that Israel, get this, was just as sinful as Egypt was. And they were just as deserving of God's judgment as Egypt was. And if you read Genesis and Exodus, you realize that they too had been idolaters just like the Egyptians were. And we know from God's word from the very beginning of the, what he told Adam and Eve that you shall not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden for the day in which you eat of that tree, you shall surely what? Die. And we are told in scripture in Ezekiel that the soul that sins shall what? Die. And we are told in Romans that the wages of sin is what? Death. All through the scriptures, we are told that sin brings forth death. And so this Passover lamb that was sacrificed was a substitute sacrifice that in the instance of the Israel coming out of Egypt satisfied, to a certain extent, God's judicial anger by covering over the sins of his own people. And God showed them grace, but a death was required for God to be just and righteous because he cannot simply 
overlook sin. Sin must be paid for. Now, ultimately, we know in the New Testament, even if you read the book of Hebrews, that the sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats were never able to fully pay the price for the sin of God's people. All of those sacrifices were but a shadow, a type, a picture of the greater sacrifice that was to come in the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and the new covenant that would come about in his blood. Just read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And so God sovereignly puts Jesus, his son, to death in the context of the Passover because what he is saying is this crucifixion of the Son of God is itself constituting a new Passover under a new covenant. Jesus would become the new Passover lamb, the true and effective substitute sacrifice that the original Passover pointed to. And Jesus would cover our sin, beloved, all of it, with his blood. And John has been showing us that only Jesus is capable and qualified to do so. We are not capable and qualified to shed our blood to cover one another's sins. We can't do it. We can't shed our blood and cover our own sins with our blood. There is no martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ that is in heaven because he shed or she shed her blood for Jesus. You understand that? We need our sin and only Jesus, we need our sin to be covered and only Jesus can cover us so that God's judgment will pass over us. And the thing is, is he not only covers our sin, but he also, and we'll see this through this passage, but he also covers us with his righteousness. He covers our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. That's why God can look at you and me because our faith is in what Christ has done and he can actually look at us as righteous. I mean, if you're like me and you look at the past week that you lived, you probably look at yourself, if you're honest, and you say, boy, I am not righteous. Look in the mirror. Think about the thoughts you've had. Think about the things that you've done. Think about all of the ways that you have dishonored God, even in the last hour, let alone the last week. And you realize that you and me, beloved, 
We are not righteous, but because of Christ, the Passover lamb, that sin is covered when you place your faith in Christ and God actually sees you as he sees his son, which is righteous. That is the best news in the world. I am so thankful for the gospel, so thankful for Christ. Now, on that final day when God judges the living and the dead, then he will not look for your righteousness and good work as the atonement for your sin, but he will look to see whether your soul is covered by the blood of Jesus. You, in particular, is your soul covered by the blood of Jesus. If it's there, and you've placed your faith in Christ, and your soul is covered by the blood of Jesus and paid for in full by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then you will be brought into glory. But if not, then you will pay the price for your own sin. And so that, how did Jesus then pay for our sin? How did he die and shed his blood on the day of preparation of the Passover? He did it by being crucified. And so we read and have read in this passage that Pilate delivered him over to the will of the Jews and to the will of the soldiers to be crucified. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, they say, sometime between 300 and 400 B.C., going to talk a little bit about this. It was a horrific way to die. And it was invented not to kill someone humanely. You know how we kind of do that in our culture? We tried to kill them humanely, quickly, by hanging back in the West. I like to watch Western movies with my boys. Nicole sometimes. Or we tried to do it by the electric chair. And now it's all about trying to kill people humanely with uh, some kind of injection so that it's painless and they fall asleep and it's quick. This is not, this is not what crucifixion was intended to do. It was meant to be brutal. And it was meant to be shameful. And it was meant to humiliate the criminal. And scholars have said, some, that this is possibly the most painful death ever invented by man. It was actually so brutal that Roman citizens could only be crucified if the emperor gave the okay and sanctioned it. And so after this horrific beating that we looked at last week of Jesus, the criminals are forced to carry their own crosses to the place of 
execution, again, to humiliate them. And in this case, John tells us that Jesus bore the cross and was on his way to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You might also hear it sometimes called Calvary, which is just the Latin word Calvaria for the word skull. Where exactly this is, no one is 100% sure, but according to some, it's, it's, if you've ever been to Israel, I haven't, um, it's likely, they say, the site near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, just outside the northern wall, and it's not far from a road. And so when you think about Jesus, so when you think about Jesus bearing the cross, you might have the image of Jesus bearing the entire cross, a big giant cross bearing on his back and walking down the road. And that's not what is in view here. No one could bury a big cross like that and walk, right? But he is carrying on his shoulders that beam, the, the, the beam, the crossbar of the cross. And so by this point, Jesus has already lost a lot of blood, a great volume. He's pro- his body's probably in shock. And the other gospel writers tell us that this is why when Jesus was on his way, walking down the road, he went as far as the gate of the city, but he couldn't carry the cross anymore. And so Simon of Cyrene is compelled to help him to take the cross the entire way. John doesn't mention that because, again, God, he is focusing on God's sovereign will for Jesus and Jesus as the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so he arrives to the place of his execution with the cross beam, and what would happen is they would take that cross beam and they would lay Jesus on his back and they would stretch out his hands as he's laying on the ground, all bloodied, and they would put him and his hands to the sides as they nailed his hands, but think more about the wrists here because that word hand can be including the wrist. As they nailed his hands in, through his wrists into the side of, of the beams, which would be excruciatingly painful. And then they would lift up the beam and there would be a, a pillar, a post already in the ground and they would attach that beam as they hoisted him up and they'd affix it to that pillar. And then at this point, Jesus' body, as he's hanging there, his bones and his joints would be all dislocated because of the weight of his body, which incidentally Psalm 22 speaks of. And then they would nail his feet to that upright post. Sometimes there was even a little seat that they attached to the upright post. And the little seat was put there not because of compassion, not because they wanted Jesus to rest, but actually was put there because they wanted to increase his suffering. You might ask, well, how does that increase the suffering? It increases the suffering because Crucifixion, they say, when you're hanging, and they've done studies on this, but when you are hanging on the cross, in order to breathe, 
it was necessary to, for Jesus to pull himself up by his hands and to push himself up with his feet in order to exhale. And so when he would, that little seat was intended to give the, the criminal just enough courage to sit and rest to get another breath and another breath. So it would prolong their suffering. And so eventually, they're hanging in the hot sun for hours, sometimes even days, and they're trying to get a breath as they push themselves up, and eventually their lungs begin to collapse, their heart begins to fail, dehydration sets in. This is why Jesus says, I'm thirsty on the cross. They can't get enough oxygen to the body, to the tissues, and so essentially what happens is the victim begins to suffocate, slowly suffocating. And they probably died, not of suffocation though, but probably the body under the stress just gives out. This depth of Christ's suffering emphasizes really the true extent and depth of his love for us, beloved. Jesus Christ endured, Paul says in Philippians, even death on a cross. He despised the shame for us, beloved. He willingly did so just as God the Father had sovereignly planned for him to do long ago. This was no accident. This was God's plan of salvation for a lost world. And you see in John's account here that there's all kinds of Old Testament types and pictures that actually point us to the fulfillment of God's word in the events of Jesus's death. Let me give you a few of them, okay? For instance, in Leviticus 16.27, we are told that the sin offering on the Day of Atonement for the Jews, the blood of which was shed for sin on the Day of Atonement, was to, they say, to be carried outside the camp. And in this case, when our Lord is crucified, John tells us not on accident, but that Jesus was led outside the gate of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified, Hebrews 13, 12. He was went out. He was led out of Jerusalem. Then we're also told that Jesus had to bear his own cross. What does that bring to mind? It brings to mind Abraham and Isaac, when we are told in Genesis 22 that Abraham took the wood for the offering when he was going up on the mountain to worship God and to sacrifice his only son Isaac, that Abraham took the wood and laid it on the shoulders of Isaac. And Isaac says, where is the offering? The Lord will provide. And then we're told 
Notice also that he was crucified between two criminals. Now we know from the other Gospels, and I love it that one of these criminals was saved. I love it that Jesus saved a criminal as he was being crucified while the other one is condemned. But Jesus, John points out, is crucified between two criminals. And I think John is drawing our attention here because he's already referenced Isaiah 53 in, in different ways. But Isaiah 53, 12, which says that Jesus was what? Numbered with the transgressors. This is Jesus on the cross, numbered with the transgressors. And so all of this was fulfilled in Christ so that we might know that atonement has been made for our sins by the sacrifice of his death. That Jesus was made subject to the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13. He was made sin in order that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our sin was laid on him that he might take and carry our sin away. So that God's judgment might pass over us. It all, it all points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you'll also notice in this passage that Christ was not only crucified to be our Savior, beloved, and this is so important. He was crucified to be our Lord. And he was crucified to be our King. Jesus' crucifixion is not just to redeem you, but it's to redeem you so that he might be King of our lives. You see, people, when they were crucified, they frequently had their offense written as they were paraded through the city on a placard that was hanging over their shoulders or over their cross as the Romans led them to their place of crucifixion. And Pilate affixed to the cross a comment about Jesus that this comment's intended, these comments that are written, they're intended to warn all of the public that if you disobey and break this law and commit this crime, you will suffer this kind of fate. That's what they were intended to do. So Pilate had one written for Jesus. And the interesting thing in this case, John Calvin notes, such a good observation, he says... The title which he affixed to Jesus, it actually implies no disgrace. It doesn't say he was a thief, he was a murderer, he was an adulterer, he was an idolater. It doesn't say anything disgraceful. It actually says Jesus of Nazareth, what? The king of the Jews. No disgrace in it. No crime committed. And Pilate writes this, no doubt in Pilate's mind, to antagonize the Jews and mock them even more. 
their supposed allegiance to Caesar by insisting that Jesus, he's saying this helpless, powerless, condemned man, Jesus, is your king. Now, Pilate obviously doesn't believe that. But this is what he wrote. And you'll notice he wrote it in three languages. In Aramaic, which was commonly used in Judea. He wrote it in Latin, which is the language of the military and the government. And he wrote it in Greek, which is the language of the empire in general. And the chief priests object. Don't say the king of the Jews. Say this man said I'm the king of the Jews. And so, but in God's hand of providence, Pilate writes what he writes. He penned it this way. He doesn't realize it. He doesn't acknowledge it to be true, but he writes it this way as God intended in order to let the world know that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but he is the king over the entire world. Jesus' reign even now extends over all people and places. To the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. You look up into the sky and as far as we can see with telescopes to the furthest galaxy that we can see, where no man has gone before, Jesus reigns over all of it. He is the reigning king. And this, too, was something that God spoke about. God promised a king to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The cross is God's means of exalting and glorifying Christ. And, and we are told that a king would come. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 says, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? forever. And he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then he said in Psalm 2, David writes, as for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he says in verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. King. Jesus is king. One more, we read in verses 23 to 24, John talks about Jesus' garments being divided among these soldiers. There's four soldiers. They take his garments, his belt, his outer layer, 
they probably take his sandals and they divide it among themselves, the four pieces. They divide it among themselves, but they don't take uh, his tunic, which is his, over his body. Instead, because it's one piece, John says, they didn't want to destroy it, and so they end up casting lots for it to see who's going to be the recipient of this tunic. Turn with me to Psalm 22. This is the passage specifically now that John is speaking about, I believe. And you'll notice Psalm 22 in the very first verse begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the words that Jesus spoke on the cross. This passage is in Jesus's mind as he is being crucified for sin. And so when he says this, it's lending support to the fact that I think that this psalm was also in John's mind as he quotes it in his gospel. But let me just, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but let me read verses 6 to 8 and 12 to 18. Listen, listen to what God wrote long before Jesus was crucified. We read, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Can you get any more specific? Let us open our eyes and see that what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ happened according to God's plan. According to your Creator's plan from the very beginning that you and I, beloved, might be 
redeemed. You know, David, in this passage, he's complaining about, in the immediate context, that his enemies are praying him and he's under physical distress and mockery. And David talks about this execution scene to draw this out. The, the, the garments he talks about in his clothes are a metaphor for David to basically say all his property was taken from him. He had been stripped naked of everything by these wicked men. This is in the immediate context what David is talking about. When you think about that in the scope of what Christ has done, it's not just that this passage is saying just that the clothes from Jesus were cast lots for and he was stripped naked, which is true. But in the, in the greater scope of what this says to us about our redemption and the crucifixion of the Lord, I want to quote one more time from John Calvin because he makes a wonderful point from these verses when he says, let us learn that Christ was stripped of his garments, his clothes, his belt, sand be sun, you know, belt, headband, or whatever, head covering. Let us learn that Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. That his naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. Oh, so good. That's the heart of the gospel, beloved. We call it Good Friday. We call it Good Friday because on this day, Jesus, the Passover lamb, willingly suffered and died on the cross for our sin. A loving sacrifice. He secured our eternal redemption. He atoned for our sin. And now through him we have fellowship with God. And all who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, alone, will be saved. In conclusion, what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means we're redeemed. But let me say it just also means this. So be brief. The cross is not meant for us to put in our pockets or carry around our neck or hang in our churches. If that's all that the cross means for you, then you haven't understood the cross. Because when Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, that's not what he meant. He didn't mean wear your necklace everywhere you go. He didn't mean put it on the walls of your house. But what he meant is this. If you are to follow me, you must be willing to follow me outside the gates of this world and suffer and stand alone if it need be. You must be willing to sacrifice your desires, your passions, your lusts, 
everything that the world wants you to love, you must be willing to take up your cross daily in your life. And like our Lord, we should be willing to suffer outside the gate and let it all go. Be separate from the world. Be in the world, beloved. Evangelize. But don't be of the world. Don't reflect the world in your life. Take up your cross. Crucify that flesh for the sake of his name. He died that we, beloved, might live. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for going to the cross and dying in our place, being our substitute, for shedding your blood that we might be covered, uh, our sin might be covered and we might be covered in your righteousness. Your word tells us it was for the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross. Lord, this is heavy to read and to read of your suffering and to read of your pain. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's hard to read, Lord, but we understand that the greater suffering and pain that you endured for us was not merely the physical pain, but it was enduring the very wrath of God in our place. And you have saved us from eternal damnation and you have saved us from hell and you have covered us of our sin. And it's not because we have done so much good in your sight, but it's because of your grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us so much and that you were willing to lay down your life for us. We pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would help us to reflect the faith that we have in Christ by our very lives that you would help us to take up the cross daily in our own lives and sacrifice the things of this world for the sake of your name. That we would do away with the sin that so easily entangles us and ensnares us. That we would cast it aside. That we would no longer become slaves to it, but that we would become slaves to righteousness. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see this world not as our home, but as a place that we are passing through. That we would be willing to stand alone outside the gates of this city, knowing that our kingdom is in heaven and our king is reigning from there. Help us to do that, Holy Spirit, that we might be faithful in the things that you have called us to do as we follow Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for our redemption and thank you for our peace that we have in Christ. We do pray for those who are hearing the gospel proclaimed this morning that do not yet know you, that you might draw them to Christ as well. Help them to see and believe in the Lamb of God who can take away their sin. We pray this, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.